The convention of punditry is to demonstrate absolute confidence in your own opinions, to offer clarity even when it's actually the clarity of the guess or the oversimplification. Today, though, I want to talk about Putin's descent maybe into caricature and, above all, a quandary. A sense that something is changing, but my uncertainty as to quite what and how. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. On Thursday, the newspaper Moskovsky Komsomolets reported that, as part of efforts to improve the quality of service in the funerary business, a national speed grave digging contest was held. And it ended up being held in Tomsk, where Alexei Navalny was poisoned. Sometimes Russia just seems so determined to layer dark irony on dark irony that I suspect it's being scripted by Armando Iannucci who, if you don't know, was behind the thoroughly brilliant Death of Stalin. And one of the many interesting things about the film is that it showed how an able and ruthless and cynical bunch of political operators could reinvent themselves after Stalin met his poetically just end. Beria, the vicious secret policeman, tried to reinvent himself as a liberal and a liberator. Malenkov, the spineless understudy, tried out a role as Stalin 2.0. Khrushchev, the courtier, made his move. Now, look, obviously this is a film and a comedy at that and not a historical document, but it did get me thinking about a process that seems to me increasingly evident today. In a previous podcast, in response to a question as to why I talked about late Putinism rather than high or mature or whatever, one of the points I made was that I suspected that this regime, this ruler had lost their capacity to evolve. Now, that's not quite the same as to change. Let's face it, all regimes are constantly changing. And I do think, though, that we are seeing an increasingly stark decline of Putin, let's put it that way. The man becoming his own caricature before our eyes. From the Navalny case, through his increasing disconnection from his own people, I mean, he's just cancelled his annual direct line marathon phone-in session, apparently because he's already done several uh, audiences to the nation. (laughs) I knew he was getting quite tired of actually talking to his people. To his noticeably more clumsy and heavy-handed diplomacy, it just feels that today's Putin is not even last year's, let alone last decade's Putin. For some, what we're seeing is a transformation of the system. Now, I'm not convinced, not at this stage. Sure, there are the constitutional changes, although we still don't really know their full impact or indeed full nature. My sense, though, is that the basic system remains pretty unchanged. But the level of control, and perhaps most importantly, the the messaging, the tone coming from the Kremlin, has changed. So it's the same TV, but maybe a different channel. 
So let me just briefly look at a few recent developments. First of all, obviously, the Navalny case. Now, it may be that I was wrong in my initial assumption that, as with the murder of Boris Nemtsov in 2015, this was more likely to be the initiative of one of the grandees, the dukes of the system, rather than actually decreed by the Kremlin. It has to be said that, if it is true, as some reports are suggesting, that the Germans think Navalny was poisoned by a new, deadlier form of Novichok, then that makes it rather less likely that it wasn't initiated or approved from the top. Though, then one has to wonder, why has Navalny survived? And why was the operation not handled more efficiently? I mean, okay, we can't read everything as significant, or we can never rule out simple incompetence. In any case, though, whether or not it launched the attack, the Kremlin has certainly retrospectively blessed it. Now, after Nemtsov's murder, there was a fortnight of behind-the-scenes debate as Putin disappeared from view. Had Kadyrov, who was obviously the guy behind it, gone too far? Did he need to be called out and punished? Of course, set against this was the fear that this might mean something negative for Chechnya, that it might actually trigger a new Chechen war. In the end, there was a partial cover-up. The Chechen trigger men were sentenced, but their chieftain merely got a quiet rap on the knuckles and the symbolic exoneration of yet another medal. At the time, though, there was a sense that Kadyrov had been in a unique position. Given that there is no suggestion that he was behind the poisoning of Navalny, it means that either the state done it, or else that there are more Kadyrovs around now, more members of the elite who are granted a literal license to kill. Also, when Nemtsov was killed, there was a real investigation made by a real investigator, Igor Krasnov, who's now the Prosecutor General. Only when he quickly turned up Kadyrov's fingerprints was he replaced on the case by a more... Mm, let's say, politically sound investigator. But the point is, there was still an investigation. This time, though, nothing, or at least nothing even pretending to be serious. I mean, more than anything else, we have demands that the Germans share their evidence on a case that the Kremlin itself seems to make no bones about prejudging as not having been a crime. It's, it's almost as if they're not even trying. And I don't think this is part of some dramaturgia, some self-aware strategy of messaging that the Kremlin is just so confident it doesn't need to. No, rather I think it is that they don't really know what to do. Not unusual. Don't care. And so are just running on defence, which is their standard sort of instinct, their default. They either thought murdering or at least poisoning their main critic was a wise or viable option even though it flies in the face of the implicit social contract of 20 years of Putinism. Or else they're fine with some crony doing it, and in effect surrendering even the specific control over the political use of violence that Putin has asserted, again, for 20-odd years. You know, this represents either a change or a failure to apply old understandings. Of course, this has also become an international issue. And here, too, there's a palpable lack of either finesse or long-term thinking. Germany is up in arms, and even Angela Merkel is hinting that the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline might be in question if Russia isn't willing to launch a serious investigation. And what does Moscow do? It blusters. It issues threats of its own. Oh, come on, this would have been so easy to diffuse. Launch an investigation, make a song and dance about that, and 
After that initial fanfare, you let the investigators apparently do their thing. Then, six months later, you quietly report that the evidence is inconclusive. Relying on the fact that given that the world is currently seems to be stuck in the middle of a bragging rights contest between the four horsemen of the apocalypse, by then this will be ancient history. But no, confrontation is seems to be a spinal reflex on which they depend. Or take a look at Belarus. Okay, now to a bunch of paranoid conspiracy theorists, the danger was that this country would be quote-unquote lost to the West. But either they believe the laughable nonsense Lukashenko is peddling about NATO troops on the border and an opposition eager to ban the Russian language, <laughs> the Russian language that 70% of Belarusians speak at home, or else they are nonetheless willing to prop up a dictator who is clearly well past his sell-by date, even if it alienates a population that once saw Russians as their brethren. Sure, look, it may give Lukashenko a year or two more and perhaps help clinch some cooperation and integration deals. But at the cost of guaranteeing, in my opinion, guaranteeing what was already likely, that someday, and someday getting sooner, Belarus will, for all of its economic and cultural ties to Russia, look westwards. Time and time and time again, in the past maybe year, we've seen the Kremlin either absent or defaulting to the clumsiest and most counterproductive of policies. The handling of coronavirus, that absolutely has contributed to a drift towards regionalism, just in time for the local elections that are taking place as I speak, of which more in a moment. The handling of the constitutional reforms, in which the Kremlin itself changed its mind halfway through. The clumsy and obvious rigging of that constitutional vote. The confusions in foreign policy, attempts at rebuilding bridges in a time of coronavirus, immediately undermined by continuing to play disinformation games. The arrest of Ivan Safronov, the journalist, as if they hadn't had enough of a bloody nose last year with Ivan Golunov, another journalist. The continued detention of Michael Calvi, the American investor who was seemingly one of the few people who still believed in Russia. And I could go on. Now, sure, there are successes too, from Syria to some of the economic responses to coronavirus. But in all honesty, these are not political but administrative achievements, the result of the fact that there are still smart technocrats in the system, rather than wise guidance from the boss. And so this weekend we have local elections. 18 governors, four state Duma by-elections, 11 local deputies, 22 city councils across the country. Polling from the Levada Centre um, showed results that should worry the Kremlin, but may, in some perverse ways, have reassured its political technologists. According to Levada, voting intentions break down, this is obviously before the actual vote, but the voting intentions break down to 31% supporting United Russia and the government. 11% for the nationalist crazies of the Liberal Democrats, the LDPR. 7% for the communists. No more than 3% for each of the other eight national parties, ranging from venerable liberal relic Yabloka to the nationalist motherland National Patriotic Union. 6% would spoil their ballots, 11% undecided, 22% not going to vote. 
So that's 31% supporting the government bloc. Roughly 35% for the fake, systemic, i.e. loyal opposition. And maybe 10% for real or realish opposition parties. And the rest don't knows, non-votes and the like. Okay, let me just sort of parse this in different ways. Of the people who are definitely planning to vote and not spoil their ballots or whatever, just over 40% are behind United Russia, 46% for the fake opposition, 13% for the real opposition. So if you're a Kremlin political wonk who's determined to see the cup half full, United Russia is by far the largest party. And with only 13% going for real opposition, you know, you've got the political system under control. Me? I'd bring a different interpretation to the table. First of all, a quarter of the electorate is unaccounted for. You know, who knows if and how they'll vote in the end? There's a lot of wild cards there. Secondly, even of the definite voters, more than half want to vote for someone other than United Russia. Now, sure, the LDPR's Zhirinovsky, the communist Zyuganov, you know, even the leaders of the smaller loyalist parties don't plan to try and storm the Kremlin. But people vote for them because they don't want to vote for United Russia. And the more who do, the more these loyalist but cynically self-interested party leaders will expect the government to do things for them as a price for keeping the presidential administration and the other hierarchs managing the political system. So in other words, you know, even loyalists have their price and have their demands. Meanwhile, we don't know if Navalny's poisoning will have an effect. And more to the point, whether the smart voting system um, that, that he was pioneering to encourage tactical voting against United Russia is going to affect the vote. Now, of course, the actual results will not reflect Levada's polling. A series of new early voting options are going to likely make it much easier to rig the votes, and we'll have to see how blatant the process and the result. This matters for all kinds of reasons, and although I don't for a minute think it will lead to the same kind of result, we should remember that obvious vote rigging is what actually triggered the people power explosion in Belarus. You know, but in particular, it's about how this vote will shape the lead-up to arguably the more important elections next September. That's to the state Duma. People have been looking about at how these local elections give us clues as to how the Kremlin will try to manage next year's vote, with multiple voting styles, new spoiler parties and all that kind of thing. Well, two can play at that game. First of all, obviously, Navalny's people and the other opposition parties will learn what lessons they can, whether it's in terms of actually how you coordinate your vote or whether it's just simply in terms of whether they can find new ways to identify and maybe even publicise voting irregularities. But above all, the country, a people clearly pretty disenchanted with the status quo. Remember that low level of vote for United Russia, which is one of the best kind of signals we have as to content with the political system. Well, they're also going to draw their conclusions about a state that seems so fearful of its own people that it fiddles elections, and yet at the same time so contemptuous of it that it feels it can fiddle them so gratuitously. Now that's very, very corrosive to a hybrid state that is at once part authoritarian and part democracy. 
So, to some observers, this means we're actually seeing a shift to full-blown authoritarianism. I put a slightly different twist to it. At present, I think we have a hybrid state trying to apply increasingly authoritarian policies. Because at the same time we have efforts to win elections and get the right people in place, we have Prime Minister Mishustin travelling the Far East and trying to formulate a new regional policy. You know, we have a hybrid state that is still trying to be hybrid, still trying to garner legitimacy through seeming to, and in some cases genuinely, reflecting the interests and, and the will of the people. So it's still trying to be hybrid, even while the boss and some of his cronies seem to have lost interest in cultivating that aspect of it. Now, this is not tenable in the long term. If it continues, then you know, ultimately the hybrid elements will wither. And these remaining democratic parts of the system simply become hollow. They'll, they'll become no more than you know, engines of mobilising real or, if need be, fake public support. We're not there yet, and I certainly don't think this is a specific intent, a specific policy. But the point is, it's a reflection of what I see as a malaise at the top of the system. Can Putin pull himself out of it? Does he want to? Don't know. Indeed, how much does he realise what's going on, cocooned as he is by courtiers, cronies and carefully written briefing memos? Don't know. How long can he last? How long can this system, this impasse last? Again, I don't know. As I say, as pundits, we're meant to be certain. We're meant to project confidence. Of course, much of the time we're just making the, the most informed guesses we can. But I'll be honest, somehow this feels like a crossroads moment. At present, Putin seems to be drifting. And indeed, it's hard to know how much policy is really being shaped by competition between grandees, senior figures within the presidential administration, the boss's inability or disinclination to lead from the front. You know, is this a system that is still currently running on autopilot and in a way slowly drifting towards heavy-handed authoritarianism as a result? It could just simply be a passing phase, another manifestation of the curse of 2020. But somehow I don't think so. The state machine spins and grinds. Personal and institutional agendas are played out at home and abroad. But there's a growing emptiness at the very heart of Russia. And politics, like nature, ultimately abhors a vacuum. So there's an upbeat and frustratingly ambiguous note on which to take a break. After, I'll look at a, a vexed question. Why do so many senior figures in Russia plagiarise dissertations? And are there any larger conclusions that one might draw from that fact? Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Esteemed patron Edward Kazia, drawing on his own experiences when he was hiring in Russia, noted his amazement at how many candidates admitted they had plagiarised uh, others' work for their own dissertations and was wondering why. 
And of course, Putin's own candidate of science's dissertation, the snappily named Strategic Planning of the Reproduction of the Mineral Resource Base of a Region Under Conditions of the Formation of Market Relations. Yeah, can't believe that Hollywood has an option, that one has also been shown largely to have been plagiarised, and not even by Putin himself, but, according to the man's own daughter, Vladimir Litvinenko, at the time the rector of the National Mineral Resources Academy, the institute that passed Putin's degree. And despite the heroic efforts of such ventures as Dissonet, a collection of volunteers who try to identify and call out plagiarism in Russian academe, there remains a thriving black market in dissertations, degrees and diplomas. Now, why might this be? Obviously, it was hardly unknown in Soviet times. But I especially blame the wild 90s. That was a time when power was rooted in display, in its trappings, and everything was for sale. This was the decade when Mercedes sold more bulletproof limousines in Russia than in the rest of the world put together. When the Rolex and the gold toilet and the supermodel mistress all became necessary not just as the perks of success, but also as a crucial way of displaying it and performing it. There was power in the trappings. I remember a traffic cop at the time explaining to me the artistry of picking out the right car to stop for a shakedown with the claim that it had jumped a red light or something like that. You ignore someone driving a crappy old larder. They probably are too poor to be worth hassling. But you also ignore anyone behind the wheel of a brand new BMW or a Ferrari. They're going to be too rich, too powerful, too well connected to mess with. Ah, but someone in, say, an imported second-hand Volkswagen or Ford? Perfect. Wealthy enough, but not too wealthy. So you didn't just display to show off, or as a response to the austerity of Soviet times. There was an actual value in showing off. And everything, everything was for sale, from high-end property and glamorous arm candy to a police escort or indeed a diplomatic passport. The Putin era has seen what we could call the bourgeois phase of kleptocracy. There's still obviously a fair amount of flash and glitz, but rather less so. Now the new signifiers of cachet may be found in... The chapel that you built for the local church, your kids' Oxbridge education, your patronage of the Russian Historical Society, rather than simply the weight of diamonds you can put round your mistress's neck. So the signifiers of status have changed, and academic quality qualifications remain important ones. But the underlying culture, the assumption that with the right cunning, connections, political pool or applied wealth anything can be bought, still sadly applies. So status is still bought and displayed, just in a different form. And this isn't limited to academic degrees, by the way. Um, even actually in the underworld, it's, it's really quite evident, which is a, a fascinating little sideline. Once, if you were going to be made, crowned in the jargon, a vorvazakonia, thief within the law or thief within the code, which was the highest authority figure within the underworld. Well, you had to be very widely respected. A man who had lived the harsh and demanding code of the Vorovskoy Mir, the thieves' world. It meant everything. 
Vorovazakonye was as much judge, shaman and influencer of the criminal world as simply a, a gang leader. These days, the, the code is essentially a thing of the past, and with it, that sense of a shared criminal community. And we have people now who still call themselves Vorivazakonye, but they are no longer truly authoritative across the community. This has become little more than an act of patronage and a symbol of vanity. A gangster takes some friends and cronies and clients to, say, Dubai. They, I don't know why it's always Dubai. Anyway, they have a party and he grants them the title, regardless of what other Vorivas Akonya may feel. It is just a hangover. It is just the, the vanity license plate of the criminal world. All of this then reflects an attitude that says, look, it's okay and indeed possible to buy the trappings of success. Well, fair enough, but is there anything more general that one can say about this? Well, I certainly don't want to promote cheap Russophobia of these sort of all Russians and Russians are cheats kind. There is, though, something of a pattern. Organised doping in sport, brazen denials of evident truths in foreign policy, possibly, according to some suggestions, massage data to make Russia's COVID vaccine look more successful, safe and advanced than it really is. And, of course, falsified election results, as we'll no doubt see after this weekend's votes. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter if Putin bought himself a geology qualification or not. But it does speak to a culture within Russia's ruling economic and political elite that still thinks trappings matter, that everything can be bought with one coin or another, and that the outward signs of success, whether it's for an individual or whether it's for a state, are all that really matters. And on that tendentious note, I think it's time to wrap up this issue and for me to go and see how much it will cost me to get to the order of friendship. It's good enough for Rex Tillerson. It's good enough for me. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, там.